Section 1 of History of Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, Chapter 13, The Military Despotism of Nicholas I, Part 1. 1. Military Service as a Means of De-Judaization The era of Nicholas I was typically inaugurated by the bloody suppression of the Decembrists and their constitutional demands proving, as it subsequently did, one continuous triumph of military despotism over the liberal movements of the age. As for the emancipation of the Jews, it was entirely unthinkable in an empire which had become Europe's bulwark against the inroads of revolutionary or even moderately liberal tendencies. The new despotic regime, overflowing with aggressive energy, was bound to create, after its likeness, a novel method of dealing with the Jewish problem. Such a method was contrived by the iron will of the Russian autocrat. Nicholas I, who was originally intended for a military career, was placed on the Russian throne by a whim of fate. Prior to his accession, Nicholas had shown no interest in the Jewish problem. The Jewish masses had flitted across his vision but once in 1816, when, still a young man, he traveled through Russia for his education. The impression produced upon him by this strange people is recorded by the then Grand Duke in his diary in a manner fully coincident with the official views of the government. The ruin of the peasants of these provinces are the Zs. As property holders, they are here second in importance to the landed nobility. By their commercial pursuits, they drain the strength of the hapless white Russian people. They are everything here. Merchants, contractors, salon keepers, mill owners, ferry holders, artisans. They are regular leeches and suck these unfortunate governments to the point of exhaustion. It is a matter of surprise that in 1812 they displayed exemplary loyalty to us and assisted us wherever they could at the risk of their lives. The characterization of merchants, artisans, mill owners, and ferry holders as leeches could only spring from a conception which looked upon the Jews as transient foreigners who, by pursuing any line of endeavor, could only do so at the expense of the natives and thus abused the hospitality offered to them. No wonder then that the future Tsar was puzzled by the display of patriotic sentiments on the part of the Jewish population at the fatal juncture in the history of Russia. This immunical view of the Jewish people was retained by Nicholas when he became the master of Russian Jewish destinies. 
he regarded the Jews as an injurious element which had no place in a Slavonic Greek Orthodox monarchy and which therefore ought to be combated. The Jews must be rendered innocuous, must be corrected and curbed by such energetic military methods as are in keeping with a form of government based on the principles of stern tutelage and discipline. As a result of these considerations, a singular scheme was gradually maturing in the mind of the Tsar to detach the Jews from Judaism by impressing them into a military service of a wholly exceptional character. The plan of introducing personal military service instead of the hitherto customary exemption tax had engaged the attention of the Russian government towards the end of Alexander I's reign and had caused a great deal of alarm among the Jewish communities. Nicholas I was now resolved to carry this plan into effect. Not satisfied with imposing a civil obligation upon a people deprived of civil rights, the Tsar desired to use the Russian military service, a service marked by most extraordinary features, as an educational and disciplinary agency for its Jewish subjects. The barrack was to serve as a school, or rather as a factory, for producing a new generation of de-Judaized Jews, who were completely russified and, if possible, Christianized. The extension of the term of military service, marked by the ferocious discipline of that age, to a period of 25 years, the enrollment of immature lads or practically boys, their prolonged separation from a Jewish environment, and finally, the employment of such methods as were likely to produce an immediate effect upon the recruits in the desired direction. All this was deemed an infallible means of dissolving Russian Jewry within the dominant nation, nay, within the dominant church. It was a direct and simplified scheme which seemed to lead in a straight line to the goal. But had the ruling spheres of St. Petersburg known the history of the Jewish people, they might have realized that the annihilation of Judaism had in past ages been attempted more than once by other, no less forcible means, and that the attempt had always proved a failure. In the very first year of the new reign, the plan of transforming the Jews by military methods was firmly settled in the emperor's mind. In 1826, Nicholas instructed his ministers to draft a special statute of military service for the Jews, departing in some respects from the general law. In view of the fact that the new military reform was intended to include the western region, which was under the military command of the Tsar's brother, Grand Duke Constantine, the draft was sent to him in Warsaw for further suggestions and approval, and was in turn transmitted by the Grand Duke to Senator Nicholas Novosiltsev, his co-regent, for investigation and report. As an experienced statesman who had familiarized himself during his administrative activity with the Jewish conditions obtaining in the Western region, 
Novosiltsev realized the grave risks involved in the imperial scheme. In a memorandum submitted by him to the Grand Duke, he argued convincingly that the sudden imposition of military service upon the Jews was bound to cause an undesirable agitation among them, and that they should, on the contrary, be slowly prepared for such a radical transformation. Novosiltsev was evidently well informed about the state of mind of Jewish masses. No sooner had the rumor of the proposed ukase reached the pale of settlement than the Jews were seized by a tremendous excitement. It must be borne in mind that the Jewish population of Western Russia had but recently been incorporated into the Russian Empire. Cling with patriarchal devotion to their religion, estranged from the Russian people, and kept, moreover, in a state of civil rightlessness, the Jews of that region could not be reasonably expected to gloat over the prospect of a military service of 25 years' duration, which was bound to alienate their sons from their ancestral faith, detach them from their native tongue, their habits and customs of life, and throw them into a strange and often hostile environment. The ultimate aim of the project, which embedded in the mind of its originators, seemed safely hidden from the eye of publicity and was quickly sensed by the delicate national instinct and the soul of the people was stirred to its depths. Public-minded Jews strained every nerve to avert the calamity. Jewish representatives journeyed to St. Petersburg and Warsaw to plead the cause of their brethren. Negotiations were entered into with dignitaries of high rank and with men of influence in the world of officialdom. Rumor had it that immense bribes had been offered to Novosiltsev and several high officials in St. Petersburg for the purpose of receiving their cooperation. But even the intercession of leading dignitaries was powerless to change the will of the Tsar. He chafed under the red tape formalities which obstructed the realization of his favorite scheme. Without waiting for the transmission of Novosiltsev's memorandum, the Tsar directed the Minister of the Interior and the Chief of the General Staff to submit to him for signature on new case imposing military service upon the Jews. The fatal enactment was signed on August 26, 1827. 2. The recruiting new case of 1827 and juvenile conscription. The U.K.S. announces the desire of the government to equalize military duty for all estates without, be it noted, equalizing them in their rights. It further expresses the conviction that the training and accomplishments acquired by the Jews during their military service will, on their return home after the completion of the number of years fixed by law, fully a quarter of a century, be communicated to their families and make for greater usefulness and higher efficiency in their economic life and in the management of their affairs. However, the statute of conscription and military service subjoined to the UK's was a lurid illustration of a tendency 
utterly at variance with the desire to equalize military duty. Had the Russian government been genuinely desirous of rendering military duty uniform for all estates, there would have been no need of issuing separately for the Jews a huge enactment of 95 clauses with supplementary instructions, consisting of 62 clauses for the guidance of the civil and military authorities. All that was necessary was to declare that the general military statute applied also to the Jews. Instead, the reverse stipulation is made. The general laws and institutions are not valid in the case of the Jews when at variance with the special statute. Clause 3. The discriminating character of Jewish conscription looms particularly large in the central portion of the statute. Jewish families were stricken with terror on reading the eighth clause of the statute prescribing that the Jewish conscripts presented by the Jewish communes shall be between the ages of 12 and 25. This provision was supplemented by Clause 74. Jewish minors, i.e., below the age of 18, shall be placed in preparatory establishments for military training. True, the institution of minor recruits, called Cantonists, existed also for Christians. But in their case, it was confined to the children of soldiers in active service by virtue of the principle laid down by the Arakchev that children born of soldiers were property of the military department, whereas the conscription of Jewish minors was to be absolute and to apply to all Jewish families without discrimination. To make things worse, the law demanded that the years of preparatory training should not be included in the term of active service, the latter to start only with the age of 18, close 90. In other words, the Jewish Cantonists were compelled to serve an additional term of six years over and above the obligatory 25 years. Moreover, at the examination of Jewish conscripts, all that was demanded for their enlistment was that they be free from any disease or defect incompatible with military service, but the other qualifications required by the general rules shall be left out of consideration. The duty of enlisting the recruits was imposed upon the Jewish communes or kahals, which were to elect for that purpose between three and six executive officers or trustees in every city. The community as such was held responsible for the supply of a given number of recruits from its own midst. It was authorized to draft into military service any Jew guilty of irregularity in the payment of taxes, of vagrancy, and other misdemeanors, in case the required number of recruits was not forthcoming within a given term, the authorities were empowered to obtain them from the derelict community by way of execution. Any irregularity on the part of the recruiting trustees was to be punished by the imposition of fines or even by sending them into the army. The following categories of Jews were exempted from military duty. Merchants holding membership in guilds, Artisans affiliated with trade unions, 
mechanics in factories, agricultural colonists, rabbis, and the Jews, few and far between at that time, who had graduated from a Russian educational institution. Those exempted from military service in kind were required to pay recruiting money, 1,000 rubles for each recruit. The general law providing that a regular recruit could offer as his substitute a volunteer was extended to the Jews with the proviso that the volunteer must also be a Jew. The instructions to the civil authorities appended to the statute specify the formalities to be followed both at the recruiting stations and in administering the oath of allegiance to the conscripts in the synagogues. The latter ceremony was to be marked by gloomy solemnity. The recruits was to be arrayed in his prayer shawl, talit, and shroud, kittel. With his phylacteries wound around his arm, he should be placed before the ark and amidst burning candles and to the accompaniment of shofar blasts made to recite a lengthy awe-inspiring oath. The instructions to the military authorities accompanying the statute prescribe that every batch of Jewish conscripts shall be entrusted to a special officer to be watched over prior to their departure for their places of destination and shall be kept apart from the other recruits. Both in the places of conscription and on the journey, the Jewish recruits were to be quartered exclusively in the homes of Christian residents. The promulgated military constitution surpassed the very worst apprehension of the Jews. All were staggered by this sudden blow, which descended crushingly upon the mode of life, the time-honored tradition, and the religious ideals of Jewish people. The Jewish family nests became astir, trembling for their fledglings. Barely a month after the publication of the military statute, the central government in St. Petersburg was startled by the report that the Volinian town of Old Constantine had been the scene of mutiny and disorder among the Jews on the occasion of the promulgation of the ukase. Benkendorf, the chief of the gendarmerie, conveyed this information to the Tsar, who thereupon gave orders that in all similar cases the culprits be court-martialed. Evidently, the St. Petersburg authorities apprehended a whole series of Jewish mutinies as a result of the dreadful ukase, and they were ready with extraordinary measures for the emergency. However, their apprehensions were unfounded. Apart from the incident referred to, there was no case of open rebellion against the authorities. As a matter of fact, even in old Constantine, the mutiny was of a nature little calculated to be dealt with by a court-martial. According to the local tradition, the Jewish residents, Hasidim almost to a man, were so profoundly stirred by the imperial ukase that they assembled in the synagogue, fasting and praying, and finally resolved to adopt energetic measures. A petition reciting their grievances against the Tsar was framed in due form and placed in the hands of a member of the community 
who had just died, with the request that the deceased presented to the Almighty, the God of Israel. This childlike appeal to the heavenly king from the action of an earthly sovereign and the emotional scenes accompanying it were interpreted by the Russian authorities as mutiny. Under the patriarchal conditions of Jewish life prevailing at that time, a political protest was a matter of impossibility. The only medium through which the Jews could give vent to their burning national sorrow was a religious demonstration within the walls of the synagogue. End of section 1